Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go. Uh, it's Advent 4, so let's pray and let's go. My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, Luke 1. You'll hear the Ave Maria sung today in church, so, but only as much as in Scripture. Everybody can relax. This is right there out of Luke. It's fine. You Don't let the Latin throw you. It's going to be great. Lord Jesus Christ, our light, our salvation, you alone come to save sinners. We beg you now that we're prepared for your coming. We beg you to rule us by your Holy Spirit, that from this day on, we wait for no one else. We put our trust in nothing except you in heaven and on earth. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, here we go. So uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we'll take a couple of weeks off after today. Even today, we're a little shorter. People start to travel. So we'll come back. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, probably the 11th of January, but we'll just see how life works out, okay? So uh, this is mostly a cleanup day. A lot of little questions about little things. Um, we did some bits with suffering, la- or we did some things with anger last week, and uh, I do want to get to suffering. So you got a couple of things um, there, but I want to I want to start with the new atheism because around this time the atheists always get a lot of press, and it's always because Christians get their their shorts all bunched up over this. Okay. So, and I know, you know, you send me emails, and I am well aware, you know, and, you know, tis the season. Um, you know, always the atheists get the big play at Christmas time because they don't believe in the baby Jesus. We already knew that. And um, then at Easter time, somebody always discovers a new book of the Bible that we already did know about. Uh, but so, you know, I mean, there's nothing to get in a titter about. So the most interesting one was there's apparently a high school teacher on the billboards around Chicago uh, from down in Naperville somewhere who's, you know, who's a math teacher said, you know, I believe in me, you know, and I'm like, that's perfect. I mean, that's such a clear thing. So here's the thing. Here's why you don't need to be nervous, okay? We talked about this before, but just so you know, um, so here's the thing. You know, just observe it, but don't, don't be nervous. So, you know, I mean, the basic thing, if you've ever come through the catechumenate, your basic life looks like this. You get baptized, you get moved into this thing that we call the church, right? And inside, there's Christ, okay? Now, here's the thing. That's how, our un- that's how our universe works. This is like hockey. You know, there's a puck and a stick. No big thing. Um, this young guy down, or old guy, whoever he is, it's very rational stuff. He basically says, I believe in me. And the whole notion, there's a whole list of billboards up, but they basically say, this is how big the world is. This is the world. This is golf. Ball on the stick. Ball on the stick, ball on the stick. They look kind of the same, but they're not the same. Okay, so for you, you know, there's the church, and then there's the world, and then out here someplace, you know, is the cosmos, and beyond the cosmos is God himself. It's a big place, okay? Now, here's the thing. Basically, here's here's why you shouldn't be sort of angry at atheists or mad at them or tell them they're stupid or anything, because long ago, far away, I talked to you about this, reason concludes its own presuppositions. Reason concludes its own assumptions. So here's the thing. Here's this guy who's very rational, and he says, the world is only this big. There's nothing out here. There's nothing out here. There's nothing. There's nothing. This is how big the world is. And in fact, the world only works if I can measure it, right? And so, you know, math is one way to measure it. He's a completely rational guy. So he's got a system to measure his world. 
completely rational. So you don't say about people they're stupid or they're illogical or they're, you know. He's defined his world and he measures it mathematically. I believe in me. I believe in mathematics. I believe I can measure the world I know. The key thing for you is that he's defined the world in this way. Okay? It's completely rational. There's nothing to get upset about. He's playing, he's playing golf. Ball and a stick. You're playing hockey. It's a ball and a stick. They're similar. They look the same. There's intersections. There's things you can talk about, you know, but they're not the same. Why? This is just the basic thing. Because I don't believe in me. So I don't believe my sight, as far as I can see, my measurement, as far as I can measure, my imagination, as far as I can think. I don't believe that that's the end of the universe. I actually think the universe is way bigger. And permeating this whole universe is the divine. Okay? So it's just a different picture. People who don't believe in God have a picture like this. They're not stupid. They're not mean. They're not angry. I mean, sometimes they are, but in general, you know, just be really careful with them. They're, they're often very, very, very thoughtful people. They just have an assumption that you don't share, that I don't share. So, you know, the limits... My limits are not God's limits. The limits of my imagination is not the limits of God's action, right? Now, here's where the things intersect. I can give you all kinds of, and this is where when people say Christians are unreasonable, then I say, tut, tut, tut. You know, if you think reason only means that you can lock everything down, you can only believe in the things that you lock down, talk to a scientist. Most things scientists talk about are not locked down. There's tons of things that aren't locked down in science. There's tons of assumptions in science, right? Nobody has to get all nervous. To be, we did this before, to be reasonable is to be able to give reasons. So I think there's very interesting reasons for altruism, mercy, forgiveness, giving your life for somebody else, loving the unlovable, favoring the weak. You know, giving food to the poor. I think there's all kinds of reasons for that, that other than brain chemicals. People will say to you, you know, scientists will say, it's all, love, for example, it's all about the chemicals in your brain. It probably is about the chemicals in your brain, but here's my question, of course. Where did the chemicals come from? And why do they work that way, right? This is why way back, I mean, if you want to play around a little bit, for me, evolution is an Easter story. This doesn't mean you shouldn't believe in science. It's just that there's questions like, how did all those dead things suddenly become alive? All the stuff that was sliming together, how did life suddenly emerge? How did dead things become alive? It's a resurrection story. As much as Easter is, how does that dead body become alive? There are really big questions like, why is there something rather than nothing? Why are things ordered in this particular way and not another particular way? Why do human beings feel so deeply? You know, you can explain it with, you know, real-time MRIs. You can explain it with brain chemicals, but that's not a full explanation. That's just a description. So human beings have this capacity to ask bigger questions. So when you get nervous about all this stuff, I would just say to you, don't let it ruin your Christmas. People are just playing a different game. People have defined the game like this, and they live inside the game. It's okay. It's a very rational game. They often are very logical people. Um, this, we, we have a different assumption about what the world looks like. My assumption includes that God is a really good explanation for many of the things that happened to me and to you. In fact, I think I can explain things that maybe philosophers or scientists can't explain. But I'm not going to go to bed all nervous about it, like 
somehow if 2 plus 2 equals, equals 4 inside the box, it means I don't believe. And one of the most interesting things right now is the new atheism, which I gave you some things at the beginning, where they talk about, you know what, people need community. So the new atheists, in a sense, have church, right? We read that at the beginning. Because they value the things you beauty, the, the, the things you value, beauty, community, right? Um, justice. So I just am saying to you, this is old news. It's a thing that goes on forever. It's just going to depend which set of assumptions you have. You should be very careful with other people, and you should not get annoyed at it in the least. It's going to be uncomfortable for you if, you, if, if Christianity loses the day. I would suggest Christianity's already lost the day. We're, we're kind of, you know, America is a Christian nation, you know. Uh, I don't know, you know, I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes Christianity does better when it's not the majority. When people really have to sacrifice for what they believe, it, it hardens you, uh, strengthens you. Hardens you not in a sharp elbow way, hardens you in a strong way, crystallizes what you got. So the thing is, is don't, you know, don't, don't get too turned nervous about that. Um, I know that I can always tell your nervousness by how many emails I get about a particular thing every week. <laughs> it's, like, it's like I have little, little pulsars set up to you and I know exactly what's going on, okay? All right, you okay? So here's the thing. And this is one thing you can think about. You can begin to think about what, why, this, why your life looks different than other people. You do stupid, crazy, weird things. You give 10% of your, what you have to the church. You give things to the poor. Christians, they were the first ones to bury the dead, first ones to educate women. They were the first ones um, to care for the outcasts. They were the people who said, we don't abort our children. Remember, in the Roman world, you could expose your child on the trash heap. Christians said, really? Because if that's not a child, they don't know what it is. Right? It's kind of a simple argument. If it's not a child, what is it? It's crying. It wants to eat, you know? Okay? So, um, you know, nobody's, you're not here by force. This is a way to see the world. It's a completely logical way to see the world. It's a completely reasonable way, which is you can give reasons for all the things that, that go on here, just like people can give reasons over there. Sure, there are some things that are locked down tight over here. There are things that are locked down tight over there. Two plus two is four. Most times, till time bends or stands still or you get close to a black hole or, you know, right? So try not to be too nervous, okay? But most of all, don't be insulting to people. Um, try to listen to them, figure out what's going on. The whole thing, I mean, I sort of read the whole, there's 10 or 12 billboards up around Chicago. There's not one of them that should make you nervous. They're, it's old news. But it, they do it at every holiday for free, uh, for free advertisement. And um, just like Easter, at every holiday, there's a new book of the Bible discovered, the Gospel of Barnabas. We knew that was there for 100 years, okay, 200 years. Everybody knows that if you're in the business. It's like telling you know, Jim Butcher you discovered an O-ring. You know, <laughs> he knew that already, okay? Yeah, maybe you didn't know it, but, uh, you know, you go to the hardware store, and you know that thing that connects to that thing that's behind the thing? Can you get me one? Jim is like, yeah, okay, you just need this, right? right? So it's just like, it's just whether you're around. It's just free advertisement, making a little case for the side. It's not a big thing, okay? But it makes you, I mean, usually Christians react, right? You get poked in the eye and you react, and there's always people who want to poke you. Okay, good. Uh, we did a little bit about, so n next thing is, we did a little about, did about suffering, or about anger last time. So I want to, you know, I want to move from that to, um, to, 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 to talk about suffering. And I'm going to talk uh, with two genius uh, theologians. I gave you a second one today. So Simone Weil uh, and Stephen Colbert, the two best people I know on suffering, right? <laughs> okay, now here's the thing. So you have two bits there, okay? Now here's the thing. I'm going, to do, I'm going to make exactly the same move here. I'm going to make exactly the same move, which is just, I'm just going to reboot the argument. Right? 
So usually people think about suffering as woe is me. Well, you know, we'll read Colbert's first because this might give you uh, sort of a different, so it's on this one. I actually, I thought of it at the last minute, so I stole it out of the notes that we use for the bulletins. You got the one that he's on the bottom, it looks like this, right? This is just very, very interesting. In 1974, when Stephen Colbert was 10, his father, a doctor, and his brothers, Peter and Paul. Now think about this. Your dad and your two brothers, the two closest to him in age, died in a plane crash while flying to a prep school in New England. Okay, so here's the thing. Losing your kids is the worst. Losing your parent or your spouse is right there after it, okay? So here's a guy. He's 10. He loses two brothers and his dad. Frankly, that's as bad as it gets, okay? There's a common explanation that profound sadness leads to someone becoming a comedian, but I'm not sure that's prove, a proven equation in my case, he told me. Now look at this. I'm not bitter about what happened to me as a child. And look at this. And my mother was instrumental in keeping me from being so. Now just think about that. Because usually what happens when we've done this, we did anger, usually when you're wounded, your first reaction is bitterness. Your first reaction is anger. And people can hold that for a very long time. In fact, they can hold it for a lifetime. In fact, it can ruin your life. Now, behind that is the notion that you think, I think, we presume that pleasure is the ultimate thing. This is the, the, this is the, great, this is the great mistake of the last two or three hundred years. This, wasn't, this pleasure, in this sense, was not on the radar as the ultimate goal. Pleasure was not the ultimate goal, except over the past couple hundred years. It was always on the radar, but it wasn't the primary thing. But if you talk to people, if you just listen to people, people talk about pleasure as being the primary thing that drives them. Just listen. You can test it, see if it's right or not. But already you see that his mother was clever enough in the midst of sorrow to reboot the argument. Okay, here we go. He added in a tone so humble and sincere that his character would never have used it. She taught me to be grateful for my life. So the key thing is that you're alive, right? Grateful for my life regardless of what that entailed. So now, do you see the switch? So a noble life, not pleasure. So people will do anything for pleasure. If you don't believe me, read all those emails from Sony that have been released. People will do anything for pleasure, right? But what if you reboot the argument and say, a noble life is what matters? She taught me to be grateful for my life regardless of what that entailed, and that's directly related to the image of Christ on the cross. Now, we've talked about this a gazillion times. How can the image of Christ on the cross be good news? My favorite line is Carol Harrison, the professor in England, who said, the cross of Christ is a blue note, like in jazz. It's a blue note. It's that note that's slightly off that makes everything else come into tune, right? So you should smoke more weed and go to more jazz clubs and you'd understand the Lord. <laughs> Apparently is the logical conclusion since this is logic day, okay? Sorry about having to have that recorded if you're listening at the district. Okay. It's directly related to the image of Christ on the cross who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of God, Philippians 2. So for Christ, the primary thing was not pleasure, because the pleasurable thing would have been to use all those magic powers to serve himself and to get down off the cross when people said, why don't you get down off the cross if you have magic powers? Who for the, who for the, 
who for the joy set before him, your joy, so not see, this is this side of the room joy, not that side of the room joy, because joy over there adds up that I do things, I do as much as I can for myself, and I only do enough for other people that they leave me alone. You just keep the, you just keep the masses down far enough that they don't riot, okay? This one kind of somewhat cynical but often true way of describing that side. Over here, other people's joy, for the joy set before him, your joy, that you'd be redeemed, that you'd be saved, that you would advance, that you would live and he would die, okay? So, it's directly related to the image of Christ on the cross and the example of sacrifice that he gave us. So Christ is not interested in pleasure primarily, but Christ is primarily interested in his you. He's interested in whatever it takes to give you life, even if that means sacrifice, even if that means death. Okay. What she taught me is that the deliverance God offers you from pain is not no pain. Do you see how that now we reset the argument? So if people are in pain, what do we normally do? We take something so there's no pain. <coughs> right? Just, just go home and read the newspaper from beginning to end. The whole paper, mostly 80% of the paper, will be about people in pain who are trying to reset their, they're, they're trying to ease their pain. We want, now we've talked about all these things. We want justice. We want what's ours. I want my rights. Now see, I've said to you often, there are no rights in the church. The church doesn't work by rights because the church doesn't work by justice. The church works by mercy. It's a completely different way to think about the world. So you think about your pain. I think about my pain. I have pain. I want to take something because I want my pain to go away. Right? Guess what? The opposite of pain is not no pain. It's the same thing Simone Weiss is going to say. Isn't it genius? I mean, these guys, it's people, people who figure this out. The opposite of pain is not no pain. It's that the pain is actually a gift. Romans 8. All things work together for the good of those who love God. So basically, Jesus, knits, Jesus doesn't cause your pain, but he knits your pain together in a way that is best for you. Now, think of all the things we've been talking about. Pain smashes your idols. Pain teaches you things you can't learn any other way. My favorite Mark Twain saying, right? I tell you over and over again, you learn, pick a cat by the tail, you learn some things you can't learn any other way, right? Pain is a great teacher. Pain smashes your idols. Pain often gives clarity. I read yesterday, uh, there was, the, did anybody read the, there was an op-ed on the Wall Street Journal about a doctor treating an atheist, PhD, genius woman, student, 39 year old. Did anybody read it? It's worth a read tomorrow. It's worth a read. So basically there's this doctor who apparently is a Christian. I think it was at Bandy. He has this 39 year old research scientist comes in. She's like collapsed just over the course of days. Like she just, she can't breathe and everything doesn't work and she can't think. She, well, it's not true she can think because she was very lucid. And he's like, what do you want to do? How far do you want to push? She's like, I'm a scientist. I don't believe in God. I believe in data. Do everything. He kind of sneaks her into a, to a, to a side room and scopes her. And he looks inside and she, he just said, there's cancer everywhere. So three weeks ago, she's completely fine. She's, you know, suddenly diagnosed with cancer. She's dead within a week or two. I can't remember the exact thing, but she died almost immediately. Okay? So that's a different way to think about your life. The opposite of pain is not no pain. The opposite of pain is not no pain. The opposite of pain is understanding the good that pain can be for you. Do not draw a bunch of false conclusions. This doesn't mean you put people at pain. This doesn't mean you 
put yourself at pain. It doesn't mean you flagellate yourself. It doesn't mean you seek pain. It doesn't mean any of those things. We talked about all of this stuff. You walk through life and you get wounded. Sometimes you get wounded because you do really stupid things. Sometimes you get wounded because people are evil and somebody, you know, hits you over the head with a baseball bat, right? You know, sometimes it's your fault, sometimes it's others, sometimes, it's, sometimes you're an innocent victim. Okay? What are you going to do with that? How are you going to process that? You can react, you can kill other people, you can hurt other people, or you can seek something more noble. Right? And so the pain becomes knitted together as a good. You lose some idols that you had of the woman. The reason I was talking about it is that she was, it was very crystal clear. When people die that quickly, what's important becomes very, very important. I often think about all the things I do all day, which I think to myself, and I think about all the things I'd want to do, like listen to music and read novels and, you know, poetry. And, and you think to yourself, well, you know, if I was going to drop dead, I would have an excuse to tell all of you, I can't do that busy stuff because i got really important things, like i got to read poetry today, right? If you knew that was coming. So, you know, you might think about rebooting your own lives in that way. Of course, you have to work really hard because you have to get a lot of money because you need a lot of stuff because that will give you pleasure, and after all, pleasure is the main thing, right? Um, that's over here. Golf, hockey. It's a way to talk about life. But it's not the way we talk about life. It has similarities. You're going to walk out the door today. You're going to be similar to all those people you see out there. But you're not the same. Okay? And one of the big places you're not the same is what you do with pain. This is why Jesus can say, turn the other cheek, which is a very painful experience. It's so interesting. The most interesting thing, the Sony hack. I heard a little thing where they said, you know, your only choices are to, uh, you know, it was a, Dave, who is he? He's always on the, he's a comedian guy, but he has these little blurbs on the news. He basically said, Sony has two choices. They can either go full force, um, um, they, can go, they can go full force, or they can just uh, you know, completely resist. But when the, the one thing they can't do is just go silent. Because when you go silent, everybody takes advantage of you. And all I could think about was Jesus, you know, on, uh, on, the, on, on the week when he's being abused, and he opened not his mouth, he uttered not a sound. Right? Why? Because people have the wrong presumption about life. That if, if you're silent, it's only because you can't think of anything to say. Sometimes you're just silent because you're just going to take what the world gives you and there's no way out. And the only noble thing to do is endure it. Because, last time, flash forward, the little baby is just going to sort it all out. If you're angry, the only way through to hopefulness is that the little baby Jesus is going to sort it all out. It's going to be painful in the interim, but pain is how we lose our idols. Pain is how we grow. Pain is how we learn. And pain gets knitted together. And the opposite of pain is not no pain. Right? The opposite of pain is not pleasure. It's actually something else. So, that the pain is actually a gift. What's the option? And this is important. God doesn't really give you another choice. Not in this life. Right? So this may be a completely illogical way to talk if you're boxed up like this, but if you see the world much bigger. So for example, I suppose you know, that guy's going to live from zero to about 78 years old if he's the normal male, right? And that's all the time there is. But if you think about your life as um, starting here, when your mommy conceived you, like the, like the Blessed Virgin Mary did for Jesus, and your life going on forever, there's no end point here, right? So you start here and you live forever. It's very, you, know, you live your life in a very different way than if you think your life is like that. If you think your life is finite, you're going to live 78 years, you act in one way. 
If you think you're never going to die, you act another way, right? So then your stuff is kind of relativized, and success is maybe not that big a deal, and love may be more important, and how you care for other people and advance them, and how you ease other people's suffering may actually be, you know, a really, really important thing. This is why the church, though, you know, what's interesting about postmoderns, you know, under 30s, they've all come back to this. People 30 to 60 or 40 to 60, I mean, the self-interest is exponentially higher in people above 50, 60, 70. It's, it's an amazing thing, right? Um, present company accepted, apparently, because you come to church. It's, it's just really, it's really interesting. I've started to get AARP magazine. How's that, man? <laughs> it's hard for me to read because every, every story is a story of self-interest. I say this to my feather, fellow retirees, you know. Every story in there is about how I can get my share. Like, where is the notion of common good, Right? But then every other, then every, other, every other group is the same way, and that's politics, and that's life, and that's how it works, right? Well, then try to call yourself a Christian nation. Very difficult, okay? How are you doing so far? So the first thing is, is the opposite of pain is not no pain. The opposite of pain is how it's knit together by God for good. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. So if you have an atheist in the family, you worry about their, about, about their soul, basically. Okay. So part of what we've been doing for the last past few weeks, I'm going to see if we can redirect your worry, okay? So in a sense... I know what people say when they say, I'm worried about your soul. I mean, I know what they say. There's a bundle of things there, right? You have to break that at least in two pieces. One is, I mean, you're a good guy, Byron, but um, you can't change the state of anybody's soul, right? So um, there's no point in worrying about that half. So the soul thing for you to worry about is whether you give a good witness to Christ. John the baptizer, he must increase, I must decrease. And so what, what we've been doing since, now I'm just reframing the question to give you something to worry about, because it's Christmas and every family needs something to worry about. So, um, you know, what you need to do, what I need to do when we engage that is what? When we bump into these people, say, you know, you're lesbian nuns who are naked from the waist up making fun of the little baby Jesus, right? I gave you that article. So what do you do there? Well, you know, if, if you get all angry and you yell at them, what good have you really done, right? So here's the thing you can control. The only thing you can control in life is you. And what you can control is whether you get angry, whether you get sassy, you know, whether you, um, you know, go into hysteria. Here's what you can control. So what do we talk about? You can sidle up next to people. You can be present. You can be kind. Occasionally you can put in a good word if people are willing to listen. You can ask a question. And then you let the Holy Spirit do his work. It's a very different way. I had to fill out the vicar's. Vicar's not here, is he? Fantastic. Is he really not here? I wonder what they got him doing today. So the thing is, is, you know, they got this question on the vicarage form that he has to fill out. They say, how many evangelism calls did you make? Now, here's the thing. Of course, what they're, and I'm going to write him a little note on this because I never paid this much attention because, you know, Val only goes, well, anyway. So here's the thing. 
I'm always, how many evangelism calls do you make? Like, who, who asked that question in like 2014? Like I said, if you want to do better on this question, I can watch you as you go around the block and knock on everybody's door and say, if you died tonight, would you, you know, go to heaven or hell? I mean, because that's what they're thinking about, right? So I said, every time, I said, so Men's Steak Fry, there's 18 guests. There have been 14 new people already walked through the door today. There were 700 people here for Christmas sharing. So, I mean, that's roughly about 900 possibilities you got already. We haven't broken a sweat, right? So here's the thing, man. Oh, I, oh this is good. So vicar, what the vicar needs to do now, I want, he didn't listen to this. What he, so here's the thing you can do for the vicar. So here's the thing about the vicar, right? Vicar has kind of a, he's kind of a, He's got sort of an intense or stoic affect, you've noticed, right? But as soon as you start to talk to him, he's completely soft inside, right? So here's what you need to do. The, but see, the thing is, you have to kind of get through that, and then you're like, da, da, da. so here's what you need the vicar. You, you, whenever you see the vicar now, he starts talking to you like, a, bup, 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 bup. you need to go talk to somebody new. Because what the vicar, the, the, the thing is, is he gets really comfortable with you all, right? But of course, being a pastor, partly is he's got to work the room. So he can talk to you, any one of you in this room, he can talk to you for about 57 seconds. Then you have to push him on to somebody else, okay? <laughs> It'll be the best possible thing you can do for him, right? Because he needs to engage all these strange people, like the people at your Christmas party with your family, apparently. And then what he needs to do is sit down next to him and love him up, right? The hard thing is, is you're tired and it's Christmas and you want it to be happy and somebody's always poking you and that's no fun. But part of being a Christian then is to reframe the question. The opposite of pain is... Not, not being poked. The opposite of pain is doing a good job with the poke, right? Because you're always going to get poked because the world is a fallen place. This is all very logical, and I'm not even working in the box, right? <coughs> I mean, this whole notion, I, I don't even really have much patience for the conversation just because it's at such a low level intellectually. And if you think that, if you think somehow that Christianity is at, at, at a level below that, I'll give you some Christians to read who can go toe-to-toe with anybody, you know, if that's what you want, if that's how you want to think about the world. I just think it's much more, um, you know, important to probably feed poor people than to get your propositional truths all in a line. So A is B and B is C, so A is C. Now what? People are still poor. People are still hungry, right? So all you can control is yourself. When you run into that situation, it's the same as if you run into it on the street, which is relax. It's a little baby Jesus business. Your business is to be kind, be loving, be merciful, give a good witness, say a good word, and then help people when the break occurs. At some point, the break will occur. You know why? Because people get sick and people die. Right? People lose jobs. You remember how much more malleable people were in, oh, say, 2009 or 2001? Say, right after, you tell me why church attendance in Manhattan tripled the Sunday after 9-11 right? And then a year later, it was back to normal because stuff happens, okay? And when stuff happens, that's your possibility, but you have to be ready, which is exactly what we're doing. So you can't be all flustered about what you're going to do. It's really pretty simple. You think about others rather than yourself. You try to be kind. You absorb pain, although I have told you the secret, the secret sauce for Christmas holidays is drive your own car, because, you know, you can only absorb so much pain, and then if you're going to blow the ears right off your head, go home and have a martini. That's my pastoral <laughs> advice. Okay? It's in the Bible somewhere, okay? <laughs> With limited vermouth. Just think about vermouth as you're pouring the gin over ice. Okay, so here's the thing. Pull up your Simone Vey thing, because you've had this for nine weeks, and we have to talk about it. You still okay?
Simone Vey, you got this? It's on the one that says to be reasonable is to give reasons. You see how we got all this, right? Simone Vey was a great Christian witness, an elegant, patient sufferer. Isn't that great? So eloquent, patient sufferer. Kind of like the woman in the op-ed, even though she's an atheist. She was an eloquent, patient sufferer. One of her core insights in Gravity and Grace was that God does not always take away suffering. Look at that. Pause. The only time America all believes in God together is when America wants to blame God for, oh, I don't know, a tsunami, an earthquake, a terrorist attack, or 9-11. That's the only time everybody believes in God together, when they want to blame him for something they normally did, or which might be an act of nature which swirls in its own way. There's a lot to think about here. So, um, God does not always take away suffering. See, the presupposition always when there's a big thing is God should take that suffering away. You know what you should do? You should take that suffering away. That's what you should do. You should do it, and government should do it, and politicians should do it. You should take it away. Why should God have to take it away? Why does he always have to clean up your mess? Why is that? Right? You think the city of Chicago doesn't have enough money to make the city of Chicago run? Really? You really think that? You think everybody is squeaky clean in the city of Chicago? Congratulations. Welcome to the worst state in the, in the nation for graft. I just saw a thing where it said something like the graft tax on Illinois was either like 4 or $7 billion. Worst in America. More graft in Illinois than any place else. And they said for every man, woman, and child, that's something like $1,241. Just in graft because people can't tell the truth. Really? Does God need to come down and clean that up? I would think that there are other people. God's very, very busy with some other big things about stars and comets and tides, and maybe you just stop stealing out of the postage bin, Dan Rostenkowski, and it'll all work out, okay? (laughs) Sorry about that Wisconsin thing there, Ms. Crawford. I actually like Dan Rostenkowski. He just shouldn't have the sheriff mow his lawn. Anyway, um, I only work with what was proven in court, okay? So there you go. Um... God does not always take away suffering. In fact, you should get busy and take away as much suffering as you can. God does not always take away suffering, but rather God always gives us, and here's the other, this is Colbert, but a little more, something redemptive to do with our suffering. So Colbert's like, you know, the opposite's not no pain. Sometimes pain's just there. They goes a step farther. Your pain can be redemptive. You learn things by being in pain that you don't learn any other way. There are things you learn by being in pain you don't learn any other way, okay? She believed that the extreme greatness of Christianity. Now, here's the thing. You just go slowly when you go through something like this. So here's a reason why being a Christian may be better than not being a Christian. Here's a reason, an explanation that should at least be in play. The extreme greatness of Christianity lies in the fact that it does not seek a supernatural remedy for suffering. Where is God? Why doesn't God fix this? We were stupid. He should fix it. Why should somebody else clean up your mess? Are you all communists? Jeez, in Wheaton, I thought you'd laugh. Okay, never mind. (laughs) God does not need a supernatural remedy for suffering, but a supernatural, and there's the same thing, use for it. That's just straight Romans 8 stuff. God doesn't cause you pain necessarily. He doesn't give you pain so that necessarily you have to have some pain so you can do this. There's plenty of pain in the world that comes by itself. What God does is, it's strict Romans 8 stuff. He knits together your pains for good. 
You impede that process if you lose faith. You impede that process if you lash out. You impede that process if you return evil for evil. You impede that process if you're selfish. You impede that process if your pain makes you more angry than you were before, more bitter than you were before, more selfish than you were before. Right? So, here's the deal. Christianity, the greatness of Christianity lies in the fact that it does not seek a supernatural remedy for suffering. You very, rarely, very rarely hear pastors say, it's only an outlier who says, God should come down and fix this. Almost always in a Sunday after 9-11. You, you don't hear pastors saying, usually, God should come down and fix this. Usually, there's talk about how you all have been given great resources by God to fix it yourself, and we pray that God would knit it all together. See, this to be human is to have will. To be human is to have responsibility. To be human is to have initiative. It's just which direction will your initiative go? Completely for yourself or for other people? In the extreme, Christianity suggests that the initiative puts others before self. Love God, serve your neighbor. That's the Ten Commandments. Right? So, it does not seek a supernatural remedy for suffering, but a supernatural use for it. The world is a very rough place. If you're lucky, you're going to live about 80 years. Much of that 80 years is going to be very painful. Your choice is, you can be angry and bitter about that, or you can see what the Lord might have up his sleeve. And you may turn into something that you could have never turned into if you wouldn't have suffered. Right? So we don't seek suffering, we don't cause suffering, but when suffering comes, and when suffering comes we try to mitigate it, but we also embrace it and we learn from it. We're a different kind of person. I'm a different kind of person than I was 10 years ago and 20 years ago because of what I've suffered. Same for you. Part of growing up is suffering things and what you'll do with that, right? Whether you'll always hold a grudge, whether you'll always be angry, whether you'll always point at somebody else, Adam to Eve, she made me do it, right? Or whether you'll be responsible for your own life and live mercifully. It's that simple. Pleasure, what most people seek in life, is fleeting and unrevealing. Isn't that great? So all these people lose their jobs in 2000, 2008, 2009. Actually, the other op-ed was Tim Keller. Yesterday was a very interesting Wall Street Journal. Above the one about the woman, this very interesting PhD, um, teacher, professor, above the, above the fold is Tim Keller who has this church going in Manhattan. He's about 64, he's very conservative. He's basically, I think he's, um, well he would be the Presbyterian equivalent of the Missouri Senate. So here's the thing, you're not popular in elite liberal circles. He has about 5,000 people um, who come to his church on a weekend. The interesting thing is, is he was about 1,200 people on 9-11. The next Sunday, he had 5,700 people. And his was the one church that didn't go back down. He stayed at about three or 4,000 people, right? Mostly under 35s in Manhattan. Now, why is that? Because in a very interesting way, he can explain these things in very clear language, what's happening in their own lives and how they need to live. It's this really interesting thing that nobody can quite figure out except, you know, by the grace of God. What he said is, in that article, one of the interesting things he said, I had all these people who were very accomplished, and then, guess what? Your layman collapses, and all their stuff is in a box. And they don't have a paycheck, and they can't pay their rent, and they live beyond their means, 
And all the things they used to do, they can't do anymore. All the distractions that they had are no longer there to distract. And guess what they found out? Those things aren't very important. So here's the thing. Like a great meal, fantastic. A great bottle of wine, if you can buy it, drink it, right? I mean, go on a vacation with your kids. Do those things, but they are not the end game, right? And you have to be able to have a life where you can live without them. This is, this is the other side of the whole stewardship thing, which is when you give 10% and then you have 90% to live on, what do you do with the 90%? If you, even, even then, if you put it all into things of pleasure, it's the end of you. The world is this glorious, wonderful thing. Enjoy it. But understand that what you enjoy is a gift, a gift, a gift, a gift. That's the difference, right? So it's not because you did it. It's because God gave it to you as a gift and you're meant to manage it. Manage it well. Some days it'll be there. Some days it won't. Right? You know, God didn't promise you'd be a success. But he has given you stuff to manage. And in this community, white, wealthy, powerful, influential, we'll have a lot to answer for on the last day. Okay? The push is on. We have a different kind of push, which is... We're meant to answer the problems in the world. Don't always say to God, come down and fix this. We need to fix it. You fix it. I should fix it. All right? That's one response to suffering. So pleasure, what most people seek in life, is fleeting and unrevealing. Right? Divine wisdom is known through human misery. Right? Pain smashes your idols. Pain teaches you things rather than through pleasure. Right? Pain teaches you more than pleasure. Indeed, all pleasure-seeking is the search for an artificial paradise. So here's the thing. If you get a great bottle of wine for Christmas, enjoy it as a foretaste of the Eucharist that goes on eternally in heaven. That's the proper way to enjoy a big cab. Okay? <laughs> this is a foretaste of what goes on forever in heaven. If you enjoy it as, I'm really smart and I'm really good and I really have a lot of money and I can afford a bottle of wine that nobody can else can afford, that pleasure will be very fleeting. So I'm not pitching asceticism to you. What I'm pitching to you is enjoying things of the first article. Listen to it when you say today in the Creed, enjoying all the things in the world as gifts from God. We've got to hurry up because we're almost done here. Indeed, all pleasure-seeking is a search for artificial paradise, which discloses nothing except the experience that it is vain. The proof that this is an artificial paradise is that you die and it goes away. The proof that this is a real paradise is that you're going to wake up someday and you'll be like, a big cab! Who'd have thought? Okay. <laughs> Only the contemplation of our limitations and our misery raises us up to a higher plane. When you finish, just say you're an unworthy servant. Suffering brings us close to God. If we would be with God, Tatvea, we must come to God in our pain. There, God meets us. And then, of course, he knits it all together. So we've done the problem of anger. We've done the problem of pain. We've also done a little bit of the problem of belief. My advice to you is relax. Say hey to your family for me when you bump into them. Try to be kind. If your choice is between leaving and blowing your top, you should leave. But if you can stick in there and occasionally put in a good word, and then when somebody really, really suffers, or when they come to the point of death, you may have some opportunity. It may not look like the life we all want, this constant circle around the Eucharist, which you enjoy here. It doesn't always work out.
but you should cultivate that and you should embrace that as a foretaste of the feast to come. The rest of the time, you give the best witness you possibly can in mercy, and then you let the chips fall where they fall because they're the Holy Spirit's chips. Okay? All right, take a few weeks off. I love you. I'll see you at Christmas time and, you know, watch the thing. Probably the second week in January, maybe the third. We'll see what happens. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.